Welcome to Western Cannonball, the podcast where a bunch of Brooklyn newbies dive into the deep end of mankind's pool of thought, even if we sink or skim. A little background, I'm one of your hosts, Lancelot Chaubert. My lovely bride, Tara, the grooviest girl on earth, initiated a thing called Third Saturday over a year ago, where we host these marathon brunches out of our house in our tiny Brooklyn apartment. Invite everyone we know in New York City's GMA, rich or poor, young or old, Bronx or Joey Z. And we make food all day long. People come whenever they want on Third Saturday, leave whenever they want on Third Saturday, and throughout the day we laugh and play board games and make stuff because everyone has something they can play or make. And we talk deep thoughts. Pause because at the same time, our good friend and fellow author for me and fellow knitter for Tara, Emily Monroe. Hello! That's Emily. She wanted to start a podcast with me, but we couldn't figure out what to do. Back to Third Saturday. But one of these Third Saturdays, uh, I admitted as a fiction writer that I had never read many, many essential books because my education was strange. Dr. Cirilla, the literature professor and Boethius scholar of Niagara University, asked me about 12 random books and I'd read none of them. I confessed this to all our friends and neighbors one third Saturday and several people were like, I want to do it too. I wasn't alone in staying away from the deep end of the pool of human thought. Here we are with a mic hanging over our heads in their dining room in Brooklyn having read or drowned in or skimmed the Epic of Gilgamesh. There aren't many rules. The first is that this is a safe space and at any point anyone in this apartment, including my dog, feels unsafe about something they said, we will delete it without reservation from the record. I'll be taking notes in case that happens. I'll get into the other rules in just a second, but for now I'm going to have all of my neighborly co-hosts say their name, what they love, and give us an idea of what makes them tick. And we're gonna be eating dinner, so Jenny brought some charcuterie stuff, and we got a little bit of candy. Are those candied pecans? Yes. Nice. Oh man, now, you guys are missing out. I'm gonna start with Joey because I have an abiding bromance for Joey. <laughs> Joey, what's your name? What do you love? And what makes you tick? Feels like a test. It's not a I, test. So wait. Okay, I'll help you with the first one. It's Joey. It's just Joey. Okay. It's Joey Hawthorne. I love to learn about history. I love to learn new things in general. Listen to podcasts. Generally, try new things that don't terrify me or do terrify me. Joey just taught me a history thing today about something that I thought was an oxymoron, violent Anabaptists. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, if anyone uh, who's listening or here right now knows more about the Siege at Munster, I would love to learn more about that. I think one thing I love is the Hardcore History Podcast. My name is Paul, uh, I live close by, I like baseball. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I do like history and I like biography and I like good novels because it goes along with something that's important to me, and that's to look at life for more and more meaning, whether it's looking at a tree or a child or, or trying to understand myself. Now, you're an old school, you're an old school New Yorker. Well, so, like, when you say baseball, you mean, like, to baseball. Like, you mean... That's not the old school definition. Yeah, I, 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 am, I am so old, I saw Jackie Robinson play. Yeah. Yeah, that's how old I am. Do you root for the Dodgers now? <laughs> Well, I no, do. No. Some, people, yeah, some people, when the Dodgers no. come to New York, root for them. No. I I have a no because because Brooklyn. because at twelve years old, I was heartbroken mm. when the Dodgers left Brooklyn and went to Los Angeles. It was the end of baseball for a long time. Wow. wow. How do you feel about the Cyclones? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's baseball, Paul. 
I've been to a, a couple of Cyclones games, you know, and uh, hey, they're pretty good ball play. Have you guys been to a Cosmos game on yes. the Cyclone Stadium? I have. <laughs> yes. Have you been to Greek Night at the Cosmos Field? At the Cosmos no. Field at the Cyclone Stadium? The Cyclone Stadium, the Cosmos game, Greek Night. It's quite a dance. That's that's next level. That's next level. I mean, the Bubble Zoo is in the back, you know, in the back right field was was enough for me. I mean, we did it on 4th of July, and then we all got to lay out lawn and Lots see the fireworks. fireworks. And then go home with the uh, 2 million New Yorkers that watch the fireworks on yeah. <laughs> Coney Island Beach. Point is, baseball's back. Baseball's I'll back. Try it. I'm Tara. I like making things. Who do you love? Everyone. The jackpot. <laughs> and all of you, everyone I meet, I really like a lot. But mostly Lance. <laughs> I'll I think race. she passed the test. I'll receive it. You pass. <laughs> really I don't know. Lance, give a shout out to Joey. You're <laughs> <laughs> oh, not a bro. I cannot have he a bromance. He you. did shout out. I'm Jenny Riley. My friend used to call me O'Reilly for fun. <laughs> I was also going to say that I love people. Can I also love people? Yeah. Can that also be my favorite? I, I mean, I hope so. And <laughs> only one of us can love people. <laughs> I think what makes me tick is building stuff. I mean, when I was little, it was actually physically building things. I liked using connect blocks. I would draw floor plans for fun, for houses. I still do that. They weren't very good floor plans. At work, building better system for everybody else to use. I like using Excel and writing formulas. And I think of my life as building too, like building um, the kind of systems that I want to have in place for for my own life. Great interview answer. <laughs> it's true. She's good at it too, like even for yeah, dinner, man. Yeah, I've never said that in an interview. That's really good. Definitely should. It's <laughs> because of the that. question that I thought of that answer. I've never been asked what makes me tick before, so the question. <laughs> Great, we, I've got interns next week. That's totally a question I answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do it. What makes you tick? What makes you sad? What makes you sad? <laughs> That's maybe a little like, bit too deep yeah. for a high school interview. Yeah, but like that would expose the Dexters in the group, right? Like That's true. Oh, I just thought of what makes me tick. What? Um, what makes you sad? My, Back to my, my insulin pump keeps me oh alive. Oh my gosh. Oh. Yeah. It makes you tick yeah. and it makes you tit. <laughs> I'm Emily. I am an art historian by training, so I really dig art. Especially you know. archaeology? Yeah. Sorry. I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I really love writing, making stuff. Living in Brooklyn, actually, which is new as in like four or five years. And I am Lancelot Chaubert. I love helping friends and family and strangers think cleverer and feel deeper and act truer and doing that however I can. I do love people too. I think what I mean by that is I never met anyone I didn't want to be my best friend and the thing that's inconvenient about that is that we're bound by time. Chesterton talked about the daily weather of the mind and I think the daily weather of my mind is very uh, neoplatonic in Bend. I've read a good chunk of Chesterton and and Lewis and Tolkien, and, and now I'm starting to try to read the things that they read. Samuel Taylor Coolridge said, if you're not a thinking man, to what measure are you a man at all? A thinking woman, as the case may be. I, man is in mankind, general, yeah. mankind. And I think that's kind of the spirit of this, is to, is to dig into something that none of us has experienced before, and to think about it. Without further ado, the Epic of Gilgamesh, and just dive right in, we'll give 10 minutes to everyone who finished the book, and then if you didn't finish the book, you can jump in. If you're an expert in the book, which I don't think anyone is, 
right? You know, I have any Gilgamesh experts here? I didn't no. read it in sixth grade. Did you really? Well, I read, I read the chapter where the flood happens. <laughs> really? So I was very surprised. Did you read the synagogue? No, um, no, 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 you give my synagogue too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> my synagogue is great, but not like that. Um, no, it's, I don't know, for sixth grade social studies class. Wow. Huh? Like, huh. Noah's a lie. This is the real story. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, that's middle school. <laughs> it surprised me to read it, and I kept thinking, oh, the flood's going to happen soon. Took a while. <laughs> it was, was mostly about the... But sorry, go for your question. No, mostly no, great, it's, I, I it's mean, a that's great romance. Cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a great romance. <laughs> yeah, a weird romance. Go it, was, for it. it was a wild book. A wild book about wild... Wild men. Wild, Wild men. men. So let's talk, should we talk about uh, Enkidu first? Gilgamesh, I mean, essentially, dude's king and Uruk, he's two parts god, one part man. And it's, and it's interesting, because they talk about this pejorative. Like, this is a bad thing. Gilgamesh sounds the toxin for his amusement. His arrogance has no bounds by day or night. No son is left with his father, for Gilgamesh takes them all, even the children. Yet the king should be a shepherd to his people. His lust leaves no virgin to her lover, neither the warrior's daughter, nor the wife of the noble. Yet this is the shepherd of the city, wise, comely, and resolute. So they're all like ticked because <laughs> every time there's a wedding, he's like, wait, wait, me first. Yeah. That's what I was going to say too, is that shocked me that, well, he has a perfect body, but he's kind of awful and everyone hates him. <laughs> <laughs> what really surprised me about the, the quote at the beginning of the story is, so I didn't think about how deep back that theme of using women's virginity as a tool for showing badness goes back that makes sense he's a terrible person because like he controls the community's sexuality yeah he well he yeah he controls or is that us saying that he's a terrible person no it's it's no, definitely it's pretty, them okay. it's pretty the gods heard their lament the gods of heaven cried know. to the lord of uruk a goddess made him strong as a savage bull none can withstand his arms they oh and yeah and then, and then create is equal so that he has someone that can take him down so he's not doing this anymore Maybe it was a happy like lament. A <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, no, I don't think so. I defer to your synagogue for that one. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> My synagogue had no part of this <laughs> He is taking away the right to choose. He is taking away consent. But they're using, like, women's consent as, like, the point at which Gilgamesh is a bad person. Obviously, that's something that people use today and have used in past centuries, but I just didn't associate it with, like, one of the earliest stories in record. You know, it's gotcha. like a very long theme, but I didn't realize how far back it went, which surprised me. In the coming of Enkidu, so it's it's the same chapter, it's like, now the trapper returned, who, I forget why he... Enkidu is kind of a wild man, right? Living with the animals, and yeah. the trappers are afraid of him. Protecting the animals. And so his father tells him to go to Gilgamesh, and he asks them, asks Gilgamesh to give him a, and the word they use is harlot, a, a harlot, a wanton from the Temple of Love. That's interesting, because in my translation, which may be a bit newer, it refers to this person as a priestess. That's interesting. Wow. See, so, so. So this was the debate. It's Ishtar's priestess. See, that's that's exactly what Lance and I were debating, was because in this one, it's translated as harlot, and I was pretty sure that in the previous version I'd read that it was, uh, it, like, a member of, of uh, Ishtar's priestesshood, because... When was yours translated? Well, this book is from 2004. Um, I'm looking for exact translation point, but I assume it's a relatively new translation. So it's 60. dated 1972, but I feel like the, the latest introduction 
date is 1987. Wonder Woman. Yeah. So this is a newer translation. And yours is poetry. It's more poetically written. Yeah. That's probably that's probably his is more line by line, whereas this one was an, was the first attempt at like prose translation. It just looks like paragraphs. Originally, it would have been a poem. It would have been verbally passed down, right? So True. your version looks like a poem, and ours just looks like paragraphs. The translator said, "I'm not going to even bother trying to do that." <laughs> he didn't want to make it poetry. He wanted actually, it to be accurate. Actually, that's the interesting thing about this translation. It's actually a woman translator. N.K. Sanders. Oh. N.K. Sanders is a woman. <gasps> I miss that. It's only in the very first page. Wait, women can translate things? Yeah, even in the 60s. <laughs> yeah, no, it was surprising to me too, but yeah, I was- if you get anything tonight, Jenny, be liberated to translate. <laughs> okay, my translation of Gilgamesh coming, coming soon. Yeah. <laughs> go, go, learn ancient Akkadian. Well, you had to learn a lot of languages. Get your wedges on. Because there were so many different old languages that this story was written down in. Oh, that yeah, that's the other interesting from thing, right? To make the entire story of Gilgamesh, mm. because there's no one version that's. Yeah, Sumerian complete. and what was the other one? Babylonian. Sumerian, Babylonian, Akkadian. Wait, Sumerian isn't Babylonian? It says Old Babylonian. I don't, I don't, I don't have the authority on that. I, uh, that, I don't so. know. It says Old Babylonian. Ooh, I need a list. Doesn't it go over like about a thousand years? Yeah. I mean, that's um, what happened. When you're two parts God. Nope. The Sumerian poems, mm. which I guess is, and then there's a Hittite version, mm -hmm. oh, and then yeah. the Old Babylonian. I'm looking at the appendix now. Hurrian. Hurrian. Semitic. Semitic. Akkadian. Akkadian. But different Akkadian. You know, so only like seven languages. Footnote as well. Actually, we have no word in English for what Shamhat is. The Akkadian word. And what is Shamhat? The harlot. The, the harlot, harlot or priestess. Or priestess. And I'm going to mess the translation, but it spells harm, harm to and Shamhat to certainly do not mean prostitute in our sense of the term. A woman oh. who sells herself for personal gain. Mm -hmm. She is a priestess of Ishtar the god of love, and as a kind of reverse nun, has dedicated her life to what the Babylonians consider the sacred mystery of sexual union. In opening to the anonymous man who appears before her in the temple, young or old, handsome or ugly, she is opening to every man, capitalized. That is, to God. She has become an incarnation of the goddess, and with her own body, reenacts the cosmic marriage. As a pure servant of Eros, she is a vessel for the force that moves the stars. The force that through the green fuse Sorry, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. So it's kind of a example of prayer in this case. See, I would I would push back against that. See, because mm -hmm. she's coming at it Greco-Roman. She said Eros. She changed the god's name. Like that is not. Well, I think she. But like, it's not also all mystery cults are created equal. Yeah, no shit. But it's also like I think she's referring to Eros as in like erotic love rather than like the god Eros. Was it capitalized? It was not capitalized. Booyah. I concede. <laughs> but linguistically, I mean, carries the baggage. I mean, yes. We, right, we, we don't really have a lot of the language for this, right? At <laughs> least he's not harlot shaming her. <laughs> right. We were talking so, before about Gilgamesh's relation to women, yeah, which is he just <laughs> seizes virgins and like sleeps with them. And then this woman, the priestess, I want to call her priestess now. Let's go with priestess. Let's we'll just call her a name. Does she have a name? <laughs> I don't the trapper know found Shamhat. Isn't that not, is that not her name? No, that's she, the title. I thought that was her name because they mention her again, and when uh, it's not the Shamha. No, right? it just says Shamha. No, I don't. I didn't notice that. I didn't notice that she was named in our version. Aha! 
Stephen Mitchell strikes again. I, I really need to work on my translation of this, you guys. So she is the one who meets yeah, Enkidu, Gilgamesh's bromance buddy guy, and basically ends up taming him. Seducing him, you mean? For seven days, to be exact. What? Okay. Sorry, <laughs> I got really excited. Have you guys ever seen the Harrison Ford movie, Six Days and Seven Nights? No. No. It's an old rom-com? Yes. It was a really long time ago. I'm pretty sure this is the whole. This is the whole thing. The whole thing. Who's Enkidu in that story? Harrison. Ford. Harrison Ford. And who's Gilgamesh? I don't know that there is a Gilgamesh. And it's not. The it's same story. it's this woman basically who's who's spent six days seven nights with him who's stuck. Did she tame him? Tames him. Yeah, essentially. Hmm. It's the same story beat there. Perhaps all stories just come from parts of Gilgamesh. Look <laughs> deep enough into it. That's you just like so cut off a bit of arm and that yeah. throws another story. I mean, well, you mean parts of the story? Yeah. <laughs> My mistake. I mean, that's what scholars are asking themselves when they study Gilgamesh. Did a lot of stories come from this story? We don't really know because it's so old. It's like what Marilyn Robinson was saying mm-hmm. the other night in the interview. Like because of language, you get to language leaves pieces with people like residue basically saying like you're a part of everything like everything you've ever read has become a part of you in some way like Um, there's things that stick right and then that informs like the stories that you tell later and regardless of how much direct influence this had on later writings i think it still speaks to storytelling soul of people in the past and that's something that you can say is going to be like a thread you can follow over time. Hmm. It's mm-hmm. not like at this cultural moment, people were writing these stories. And at this later moment, they were writing these and they had no influence on the past is always going to have some sort of influence. Sure. Everything's derivative, ultimately. Yeah, everything's boring. Nothing <laughs> <laughs> is original. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the good things about, thing about things that are boring is you bore long enough and you hit something. <laughs> if you stare at a wall long enough. You start seeing all kinds of pretty colors. I got your joke. That's right. What's that? I got your joke. Thanks, Joey. It was just for you. I did too. <laughs> yeah, I heard you laugh. It wasn't for me. If you like it, I mean, it's freely given. So what did you guys think about the like the whole cedar forest section? Oh, we're jumping. Yeah, not that far. Not that far. That's just basically the next chapter. That... I thought you were talking about taming, killing the beast. Right? No, oh. so it's it's coming of Enkidu, the forest journey, the death of Enkidu. Doesn't the beast come after the forest journey? Because well, they're... they they prep they prep for Humbaba. Yeah. No, is Isn't that death? such a great name? Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. I love that name. Sounds a little Lion king I think we should all say it three times. Oh, we're probably saying that. I don't want to know if it's wrong. Reminds me. <laughs> makes me think of, like, a medium-level Dragon Ball Z boss. <laughs> Right, like Humbaba deep in the forest. Yeah. Was it you that were saying you couldn't watch Dragon Ball? No, no. No, it was me. It was me. I was never not allowed to watch Dragon Ball Z as a child. I feel like someone should briefly summarize. That's too bad because it was really. Good. I know. I, I've seen it as an adult. Yeah, well, don't get okay. me wrong. Well, that's all right. I can see people going, "Oh my god, you haven't seen Dragon Ball?" I, no, I, I trust saw me, it as an adult. I've seen too, it as an adult, but like, I feel like someone should briefly summarize like the events of the story. Like, this happens, and this... Yeah, go for it. Okay. So, it starts with Gilgamesh, and then the people cry out to the gods and say, we need, we need something to rein this guy in. He's too crazy. Enkidu is kind of created. 
and then he's tamed and brought to the city. And then Gilgamesh and Enkidu go to the forest where they defeat Humbaba. Humbaba. And and also like no, it's basically Humbaba. There are scorpion people in here somewhere. Dude, those things freak and me then, out. Then one of the gods go. sends the bull to punish them for what they did, and they end up killing the bull. And then Enkidu gets punished. Can I read the bull part very quickly? Sure. Yeah, sure. Okay. This is one of my favorite lines. Ishtar was outraged. She climbed to the top of Uruk's, Uruk's great wall. She writhed in grief and wailed, quote, Not only did Gilgamesh slander me, now the brute has killed his own punishment. <laughs> <laughs> That's really great. That is a mom with a second-born child, for sure. <laughs> and then Enkidu ends up punished for killing Humbaba, or the bull, or both, by I, dying. I didn't, I didn't understand. That's one yeah. of many things I did not understand. And then the story kind of takes a different turn because Gilgamesh is depressed and he's like, oh shit, I'm gonna die too. And so he walks all the way to the end of the year to try to find immortality and then no. it doesn't... And his dad out. basically tells him, tough luck, you're gonna still die. Selected among mortals to be the one mortal who gets to live eternally. Wait, and that's the that's the flood bit though, right? That's the I skipped the flood. What? <laughs> that's the important part. Is it really? Wait, when does the flood happen? In middle school, it was. <laughs> it's an important part. I can't even remember when it happens. When does the flood happen? In antediluvian earth. <laughs> Sorry. It's like so. So his father tells him is like supposedly supposed to be telling him the way to become immortal. Right? And apparently the way to become immortal is to stay awake for seven days and seven nights. And then you get so delirious that all the gods come to you if oh, you convince them to be immortal. Apparently. Yeah, and then I, I and then so his dad tells him <laughs> and then his dad tells him to stay awake for seven days and then he can't because he's just been on this giant journey. Mm. And so he falls asleep and sleeps for seven days instead. And then they wake him up and they're like, You you missed your chance. You failed. You did the and opposite. Then they, and then they send him home. What's his dad? And then he thing? dies. Ted. And then Gilgamesh dies? Yeah, yeah, at the end. Very end. Blast. No, no, I mean like there's not something that comes after that. He comes <laughs> home. Oh no, there's a return. So there's a return, he comes home, but he, it's basically... Unapishtim. Yeah. So yeah, Unapishtim is the, is the, is the Noanic character. The right? flood? The, yeah, the ferryman. The flood, it, correct me if I'm wrong, is a memory. Uh, from yeah. his father. Yeah. Oh, it's a story, that's why I didn't remember. It's, it's, it doesn't it's follow post flood. Yeah, so everything like, happens after the flood. Whoa. It's interesting, <laughs> though, like, how close it is to the biblical story. It's like right? verbatim. Except, I mean, you guys probably have a similar story, but this is the thing that I found crazy. Let me find my flood quote. The birds, mm -hmm. but the swallow flies off, returns back to the ship. Then the raven goes, flies off. Mm -hmm. and but doesn't finds, come back. Yeah, well, yeah. And then so wait, why are sat, the birds flying? So in the original Noah story, they send out different birds, and the dove, right, finds a branch. From the boat. Well, there was a dove and a raven. The dove is the one that finds that they the can land now. Yeah. But in this story, it's So they're a raven. sending out birds so that they can see if, like, oh, if there's somewhere to live, the bird won't come back. Exactly. Or it'll bring back a branch, I that, guess. That's actually, <laughs> that's actually a pretty interesting right. nuance. Yeah. And so. Tells you know, a lot about the culture. Yeah. It's Sorry. like pro raven culture as opposed to doves. Yeah. I just thought it was really interesting. And the raven also basically. <laughs> in the Noah story, they have two of every animal so that they can have more animals. Sure. But seven the raven. Of some of them. Oh, okay. Because the raven just leaves. 
So, according <laughs> to this story, no more ravens. Because <laughs> the raven doesn't come back. Maybe they find each other later. Yeah. Like, it's an epic, it's an epic search. Like, it's it's we, an epic uh, of Ragamesh. <laughs> what if, you know, there was like a really bad rip in the space-time continuum and all ravens are just the same raven? <laughs> the raven multiverse. <laughs> it's like the, the, oh, it looks like the frittata's done. Ooh. Ooh. Is it done? Yeah. Can I pick up egg You know how uh, lucrative this podcast would be if we could somehow transport smells through audio? <laughs> The first of its kind. Yeah. yeah. From the book or from this room? From the book. Because I don't know. I, w- I was going to say, I don't sure know if we want to do the book. The book has some really weird smells. Like you scorpion, smell dragon people. Probably mostly smell like sweaty person. Because he had like lion pelts on him. Gilgamesh oh, yeah. fights these lions and he ends up wearing their skin for clothes. But he doesn't take time to tan them. Right? <laughs> Who does that? He probably smelled know, pretty bad. An awful lot of long hair. <laughs> That's really gross. So why when Gilgamesh finds the, what is it, like a plant or a flower of immortality, why doesn't he just eat it or smoke it? I think he was bringing it back to Uruk. Why? Because he wants to share it with his people because theoretically well, he's still like doing this for a reason. How about he wants he... to like share immortality with the rest of the universe, right? He's like, hey, sorry I took all your wives. Here's this nice flower. Why can't he eat it and then give them a different flower? Because he only got one. Well, he like drowned and he like half drowned himself, right? Uh, he like tied rocks to his feet and sank to the middle of the river and then plucked up the one flower but it like ripped up his hands and then he oh, like right. like removed the the weights and got swept out to the ocean. Yeah, he gave himself we concrete boots. Rested up and then gone again like in a month. Gilgamesh makes a lot of questionable decisions at the end of this book. Such as that. The things before are okay, but the end is like, ran into all the stone men and just clobbered them to pieces. When does that happen? The like, stone men? Yeah, there's, is that, maybe that's another translation that's different here. Oh. It's the guy who helps, or the, the guys who help the boat man get across the yeah, water. The ferryman? The ferryman, yeah. So there's a whole bunch in my book of stone men that help and Gilgamesh just runs in and smashes them all. Oh, the in ours it's the ballast stones for the boat. He sm- he goes and he smashes up the entire boat and he so he smashes the tackle which is block and tackle that helps you raise the sails and he smashes the mast and he smashes the prow and the yeah. the weights that go the stones that go in the bottom of the boat oh, presumably. He's just so angry. Here's Shinobi, the no, guy I think... whose boat it is. Yes. He says, your hands have prevented the crossing, since in your fury you have smashed the capitalized stone men who crewed my boat and could not have been injured by the waters of death. Our version didn't have oh, our, our version didn't have that. I like that better. Yeah, I like that you have stone men who are like... <laughs> there is a lot of violence that is confusing and I think I'm more used to modern probably western storytelling which is everything happens for a reason and the main character knows whether they're supposed to be doing something or not and if they're not and they do it anyway then it's like they knew that it was bad and so then when they get punished it's kind of like you see it coming but in this story you know he gets mad and smashes the boat and you don't know like is that gonna work because now people see oh he's mad we're gonna do the thing or is it oh Oh, you ruined everything. Like it's a little confusing. And then when they, when he and Enkidu go to the forest 
to try to get some trees for their people and they kill the monster, they have this whole debate about it beforehand about whether they should kill Humbaba and they can't decide and then they do it and then the gods end up killing Enkidu because it was the wrong thing to do. Yeah, why do... Well, I, I, I don't understand. We're in the same boat. <laughs> what? what? I said we're in that boat with you. Well... The boat that's no. being torn apart. I think you understand more than I do. I mean, I got three quarters of the way through, but I fought with it all the way, and I got and I'm more confused than ever. So the only reason I came tonight is I thought, I'm going to come listen to other people. <laughs> they, they, oh, come away with something. Let's have the fun of this, right? But why does Enkudu get sick, die, and what is the effect of it on Jubilee? I, I mean, think there is this big... Yeah. Strong relationship, but I don't understand how it really affects or changes Gilgamesh. Um, he has to die, so they, they've killed Humbaba, right? And they're like, well, there has to be some kind of punishment. The gods all go, one of them has to die. Shumash, who's the, the god of the sun, says, well, you can't kill my bro Gilgamesh. And everybody's like, so I guess we're going to kill Enkidu. Well, um, why? Why? Because <coughs> yeah, they killed Humbaba. So um, what? monster. They're the heroes. Aren't the heroes supposed to kill the monster? No, I sided because... with Humbaba. <laughs> I had a lot of sympathy for Humbaba. These dudes come striding up to his sacred cedar forest, right? And they start chopping down the trees and like, like... So, but what is Gilgamesh's grief all about? The death of Enkidu. Like, yeah, so I know. It's, it's I mean, about, he's there. The, the suffering goes on for days and days and days. But, but He's upset that Enkidu has died. Like, really upset. Like, that he doesn't uh, let them bury him until he's, like, all wormy. Yeah, that was that was kind of gross. Yeah, just just a tad. Yeah, just, just, upon him. Un until he has the, the snake, the, the the worms upon him. Yeah. Um, until, he, until he got the worm. One of the reasons <laughs> I'm glad this book doesn't have smell cast. Yeah. <laughs> At least my translation says they omitted a lot. So Ingudu has a quote from the the translator, Stephen Miller, what he says is, the standard version begins with Enkidu's long, rather silly speech to the door. Wait, when, who talks to a door? Enkidu. Enkidu, before oh, talking yeah, to Gilgamesh, just talks to a door. I guess he yells you guys at have. the door, because he's yeah. like, door, we made you, and it's your fault. Yeah, so they... No, but he yells at the door to the city. Oh. Right, because that, the that they made with the cedar, that they... that yeah, they, that they got from the land of the That they got from the land of the cedars, because okay. that's why they went to the land of the cedars to build a gate, because there is no cedars in the land of Burke, right? They have to go and get the wood. That's why their city walls are built with clay. She's like, stupid door. And actually, I mean, so if you look at the gates, like the Babylonian gates in, uh, you should link to a photo of this on your... Okay, liner um, notes. I mean, they really are really cool. Right? And there are actually names stamped on each of the bricks. Oh yeah, they did this in they did this in Jerusalem too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The the gates, there's some of them are in the British Museum. British Museum? Maybe. I don't know, we'll have to check. I think the Met. I know that the Met has some of this. They like they have bits of the wall, but they don't have the actual gates, which I think are the British Museum. Huh. Possibly Germany too. I don't know. We'll check. The gates are really cool, but you can definitely see that there's no wood in their construction. There's very, because there's very little, like basically they chopped it all down. And so they had to travel really long ways. Mm -hmm. The main thing that I saw that was left out, at least in the Stephen Miller translation, is that when the gods are talking about who must die, in the Hittite version, the sun god of heaven said to heroic Enil, wasn't it at my command they killed the bull of heaven and also Humbaba? Enkidu is, is innocent. Should he then die? And then Enil grew angry at the sun god and said, you are speaking like that because you accompany them every day like a friend. 
Oh, we got um. Someone's jealous because you walk. You walk with them. Uh, you walk with them every day like a human, like you were their brother or something like that. Yeah, similar. So, so pretty similar. But so the gods are debating this, and Leo has a problem. We don't know what their problem is. At some point, he he or she was friends with Humbaba or something like that. Probably a he. Or maybe friends with Ishtar, who's upset that the Bull of Heaven was killed. It's a pretty big deal. We'll get a second one of those. <laughs> it was first edition, man! It's not, it's not able. How do you know? It's like, it's factory default! <laughs> Pretty bad when you kind of punish end. a human and they kill your punishment. Yeah. <laughs> this guy took our only Taurus! So, but where's the idea of a bullet that come from? Is it a good question? Did I, I, did, I, mean, I read over so many things that I go, oh, okay, but... I, I mean, I don't know, I would assume it has like connection with sacrifices. But it's not something I've ever heard of before in any other story. Bulls are a big deal because they're simultaneously like wealth, mm -hmm. right? Because if you have a bull, you can make more cows, That's right? That's where the bull economy comes from. <laughs> Literally. Um, mind blown. Someone get your tan But also, so bulls at the, at the same time are, are literally wealth for a lot of history. Like if you could afford to keep a bull which didn't give milk, then like a bull with your herd, like you were wealth because your wealth grew. So bulls are compounding. Bulls are bulls are literally compounding interest. They are compounding in the verbal sense and in the Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah, yeah. They are compounding per se. They so, cause your herds to increase. Um, oh yeah. May your may herd your, your herd increase. Yeah, increase. yeah. There you go. Hey um, Terry, this is really great. Oh yeah. Thank you, Terry, for dinner. If our listeners write in, will we will you mail them? piece of frittata. Who wants a buttered English muffin? No, but we should probably take a picture of it. I'll take a picture. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, I don't have any on there. Okay, does anyone want a beer of their choice? There's only one for each, so it's personalized. Uh-oh. <laughs> Which beer would Gilgamesh choose? None uh, of these. His beer was made with bread. In Babylon, same as in Egypt, they made beer by baking bread smashing it, breaking it up, probably introducing some spit, and then putting that in a big jar and letting that ferment. So, wait, did you say yeast? Nope, oh. spit. So the spit was the... Well, so there's yeast in the bread, right? Oh, right, okay. The no, spit right. introduces, like, yeah. some of the digestive compounds that helps break down the, the uh, bread into, like, sugars. It's gonna be a great sound effect. That's why I did it right there. Yeah. <laughs> Who was the first person that discovered that? Uh, probably somebody who had some really soggy bread <laughs> and was really hungry. Frankly, I always believed it was like on a dare, right? Who stored their bread and then it got like rained on, right? Like, oh my bread! And then like, somebody was like, you should try to drink that, right? <laughs> and somebody was like, oh. And then they got super drunk and everybody was like, hey, that's cool. <laughs> we underestimate the value of cupbearers in our human history. Right? Like, who is the guy that was like, yeah, I'll try that bloodberry. Timlock looks a little bit like mint. Yeah, I bet they learned that one real fast. Mm. I wanted to go back to your question, Gilgamesh, after Enkidu dies, because yeah. <clears throat> his grief actually made me angry, mm. because I didn't think that he cared about Enkidu. I'm pretty sure he just was like, I'm gonna die. I really don't want to. 
It didn't seem like he was actually sad that his friend died. And his friend was kind of like, dude, why do I have to be the one who dies? And Gilgamesh was like not sympathetic at all. And then he goes on his like quest just to get eternal life. Don't know what you got till it's gone kind of thing, you think? No, so I don't think he like... ever cared about Enkidu. Really? Really? He had this like... Hey, <laughs> we got a dinger. I, I feel like he just like had this huge existential crisis after he passes away. Like not only mm-hmm. is my best friend dead, which makes me sad but then he's like all wrapped up in his depression and he's like but i'm gonna die too and that makes me even sadder yeah it's kind of like an empathy thing right like oh man the thing i love most in the world died and that's gonna happen to me like this weird that's that's how i read it and i and and so i agree with you that i didn't i I had no sympathy for (laughs) it Because he had an existential crisis. Well, and I think that's really, like, the point No, of because I didn't believe that his grief of the friend dying was not so much for the fr- for the loss of the friend and the friend, but for what was going to happen to himself. To the extent that I understand it, and I don't think I understood it very well, but to the extent that I do, it seems self-centered. And well, that's the thing. I think Gilgamesh is kind of the ultimate self-centered hero. <laughs> <laughs> like, his big flaw as a hero, if we're gonna, if we're going to go all, like... I, I was gonna say uh, hero's journey on it, sure. um, but his Just big yeah. Thank you. Uh, I feel like his big flaw as a person, right, as a hero, is his kind of self-centeredness. Enkidu kind of breaks him out of that, right, and then when he passes away, he like regresses. Hardcore. Yeah, that's kind of the thing about the weddings, right? Even at the start. Yeah, no, exactly, it's like, right? You're making a wedding about you, dude. Every part of the wedding about you. Like, it's totally her day. That's interesting that you see the second part as being a regression, because I think the introduction, like a higher level pursuit, then we're gonna get some wood. <laughs> now it's like, I'm going to get eternal life. Quest is kind of a higher level, but the... The motivation. The motivation, right, has regressed to that original self-centeredness moral this story has, which I definitely kind of does, right? Like, it's definitely... Well, I think uh, it has multiple at different points, but I feel like this particular translation kind of broke up dialogue like Dostoevsky, and I was like, man, (laughs) paragraphs, please. You guys remember the tunnel? Oh, yeah, that was cool. That was so... I got so freaked out. What? Like, he'd, he'd, like he would die. If he... I loved, I actually loved, really loved that part, like his when journey. When was this? Uh, when he's looking for everlasting life. Gilgamesh does? Yeah. I have a big note here that says repetition builds suspense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of, and it, there's a lot of uh, epizootsis like that where they, with a repeat something, it almost feels like, it feels like an oral story. Mm-hmm. And he said builds. it. In the introduction, that repetition is a crude poetic device. No, well, like did she basic. say that twice? <laughs> <laughs> well, but it is ba- it's basic, but it also so one of the things I I've disagreed done... with her for the record. But go on. I think a device <laughs> is a device. <laughs> it either works or it doesn't. You can't say like, oh, this device is crude. Like that would be saying it didn't work. It well, but it's work. also like like essential for oral storytelling. Repetition helps memory in the reader, right? And it also builds rhythm. So the like a lot of the best children's books do a lot of repetition. I am Sam. Sam I am. It helps the reader, right? Because it builds rhythm. And it helps the listener. It loops things. It's like spiral telling. Yeah, exactly. What is it? Spiral. Uh, So think of it like pyramid storytelling. What's pyramid storytelling? So like, okay, so when they say like, don't bury the lead, which I totally just did when I started this. Okay. (laughs) A lead is a, like the point of what you're trying to say and report it. Pyramid, outline, it basically builds itself out from one main point 
and moves towards tertiary details. And then it like loops back to the main point every time it goes, it builds another level. The classic example is like at 5 p.m. in the whatever theater, Mr. Lincoln was shot with a handgun by what's his name. It's like the opposite actually of a lot of novels. Like you would, you'd hold that back you know, normally. But in reporting, you would start out with that. Yeah. So in spiral storytelling... You start with the punchline, you go back to a beginning. Oh, okay. And you build back to the punchline, and that changes the punchline. Like, let me tell you about that's the time... That's what that's called. Yeah. That's what I loved about How I Met Your Mother. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There you go, yeah. That's spiral storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, you know, beginning, middle, beginning, or... Let me tell you about the time the hippo, world's largest hippo, shadowed my grandma. Yeah. That's, that's the point of the story, and then we gotta go back through that, you know, to get to that point several different times. Is that just a random opener or is that an actual story? It yeah, it's an actual story. That happened to my grandma and it's in that novel. Okay, fine. Yeah. Wait, I did not think that I'm was telling real. I'm telling you. It was No, real. it's absolutely real. Oh my goodness. Yeah, no, she was wearing white at the time too. It's just... <laughs> the hippos do this thing. See we're, see, we're doing it right now. We're coming back to the, like... His grandpa locked her out of the car. Yeah, yeah, hippos do this thing where the tail goes... <laughs> I've seen. I watched the so, like, um, nature you, you watch. Oh, okay. <laughs> I watch hippos. I watch hippos. <laughs> I just want, you know, you can you... log into zoo webcams and just watch them. <laughs> <laughs> that is the worst GoPro ever. My favorite accessible, widely accessible public mm-hmm. is the one that's a traffic cam on Abbey Road where the Beatles took the picture of them crossing really? the street. <laughs> and if you watch is... the camera, everyone's thought the cars are angry, everybody's upset. Yeah. So we've been trying to take pictures and recreate it. So yes. Yeah. Everyone, all the time. My favorite one is the, uh, if we're doing, if we're doing uh, webcam shout-outs, my favorite one is the kitten terrarium at the uh, Brooklyn Cat Cafe. Oh, there's Which, a, yeah. there right would be a terrarium. Shop. It's right by our, yeah, so it's, it's the, it's like right by our knitting cool. shop. Um, it's the kittens who haven't been immunized yet. They put them in this like glass enclosure with their oh, so mom. So it's a quarantine. Yeah, it's quarantine for them. And they just like tumble over <laughs> each other and like are taking naps. We'll put in. We'll put in a link. Speaking of the tunnel. Yeah, thank you. I didn't find nice, the tunnel. Nice, <laughs> nice backtrack, Speaking Joey. Of the tunnel. Um, I mean, my page number won't help you at all, so I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but I was just reading lines and a little bit. Oh, you can say sure. your page number for a listener that Oh, good point. If you all, have Stephen Miller's. For all the viewers who are uh, viewing <laughs> Stephen Miller's. Viewers, listeners. You know, for yeah. our live stream that we'll be setting up in the future. Ear viewers, you know. <laughs> yeah. When I had a radio show, I always call people the viewers. Like um, the it was still wrong then. <laughs> so, for the viewers who are reading Stephen Miller. face for television. Face for radio. <laughs> Go for it, Jenny. I believe that I was looking at page 164 before. But I was just remarking on the introduction. Stephen Mitchell, sorry, Stephen Miller is someone much worse. Stephen Mitchell <laughs> is talking about the tavern keeper, Shiduri, who uh, Gilgamesh meets right afterwards. And they make a good point that Shiduri is terrified of this man who's been reborn, but not really been reborn, and is still like murder crazed going through. But Shiduri is goddess like matron who just brews beer for every hundred years person who comes through the tunnel. Just really cool that it's this like this brewery that's just like on the other side of the world of this tunnel. Probably gonna be a runner, right? Who's like, hey mom, someone coming through the tunnel? She's like, I'll start my beer. Well, I hope they're not murderous. <laughs> and <laughs> but if maybe, they are, I have a roof. 
Yeah. And a, and a gate that she bars. And a gate that is useless. Because it would take about the time to brew a beer. Honey, welcome home. So you get this beer from You've this... You've been traveling. Here's your beer. Well, at least they'll, like, open a jar, right? Yeah, right. exactly. And then he goes to smash the stone men, in some cases literal stone men. The, the fairy man is just says, yeah, you know. Yeah, I'll still take you. It's still cool on the other side of the world. So so here's how it goes. Does it creep me out? The man scorpion opened his mouth and said, this is when he's trying to pass it the mouth. Right. To get home. I hate these scorpion people. This is the way home. No, this is the way to the end of the world. Was it you that handled scorpions? Yeah. And said they have no soul? They look at you. Like, you look into the eyes of a scorpion, and there is nothing looking back at you. (laughs) Except death in the abyss. Except death in the abyss. Exactly, yeah. That's what I had in mind. Whatever it is. I don't know. No one who's ever, (laughs) no one who's ever, like, stared eye to eye at a scorpion. Dwayne the Rock Johnson. They were big enough that you could, like, see their Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can like you can like look at so you can like look at like tiny little jumping spiders and they'll oh, like look yeah. up at you and oh. go ah. Yeah. Another good sound effect. Yeah. Well, spiders have too many eyes. But I mean, I mean, you look at little tiny little jumping spiders and they're and they're like looking at you and like oh. there is some form of cognition going on. <gasps> nothing, nothing at all. They're just like like can I eat you? No. Can I? I guess I'll just sting you to death. Then. Like that's <laughs> that's all that's going on. I have two sharp things. One's teeth. One's Claws. Claws and stinger. Three. Okay, sorry. It's a trinary death system. Yep. So that's what I had in mind when I read The Man Scorpion opened his mouth and said, speaking to Gilgamesh, No man born of woman has done what you have asked. No mortal man has gone into the mountain. The length of it is 12 leagues of darkness. Does anyone know how much a league is? Ooh, let's look this up. You got it? You got Uh, your footnotes, Joey? Well, the footnotes do talk about cubits and comparisons. So my footnotes may have more. Yeah, nautical or Terran leagues. I think that's probably Terran. 12 leagues of darkness. Joey's going to check that in Stephen, not Miller's, Mitchell's. Stephen Mitchell, yes. Stephen Mitchell's footnotes. (laughs) Not to be confused with Stephen Miller again. Although we might get to the 300 if we keep... (laughs) That'd be a crazy guess. In it, there is no light in this tunnel, but the heart is oppressed with darkness. Part of the tunnel or his heart? From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, there is no light. Gilgamesh said, Although I should go in sorrow and in pain with sighing and with weeping, still I must go. Open the gate of the mountain. And the man scorpion said, Go, Gilgamesh. I permit you to pass through the mountain of Mashu, and through the high ranges may your feet carry you safely home. The gate of the mountain is open. Nautical? Never has Gilgamesh or anyone, never has anyone crossed the mountain, its interior for 12 double hours, or 12 double leagues, which equals 80 miles. I have, 20, wow. I have 41.28 miles for modern leagues. But is it That's leagues not- or double leagues? This I guess it, I guess it must be double leagues. So, so like 80 miles. The point is a lot. So Lots. 80 miles and 12 of those. Oh. No, I mean, no, I think 12 no. No, that's the total. Is 80 12, miles. So 80 miles. You know, a few marathons. So how long does it take to walk 80 miles? Three or four days. Three or four days. For Gilgamesh, straight? he's fast because well, they keep yeah. saying he does it in what a normal man could do in a month. He does in three days. He does have long legs. But it's because he's two parts god. But one of those is a <laughs> sun god, right? So, so a <laughs> mile. Like darkness. A marathon is 26. Point two miles. Right, so don't. basically, two marathons. Three, almost three marathons. Three marathons. Yeah. All right, Dungeon so Master, does he take negatives for darkness? Yeah, sure, why not? Okay. <laughs> he <laughs> so takes negatives hours. for darkness. For these kind of long trips, I always wonder if it's a matter of it's just a really long trip or there's symbolic meaning behind why these legs are the way they are. Yes. I don't know. Yes. 
Let's keep moving. You want to start from the beginning again? <laughs> no, that's all right. I mean, essentially, there's a scorpion guy who's like, all right, I'll open the mountain, but you're an idiot. And he's like, I got to do it. I just, I got to do it anyway. The capriciousness of this whole setting. Is the scorpion going to kill him? Or is he just going to let him go? And like, yeah. are the gods going to kill them? Or are they going to let him go? Are they going to bless them or curse them? Like it feels kind of like a South American fairy tale in that. Like, it reminded me of Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. Like, here's a guy with Magical eyes realism. in his hands. Magical Good realism. or bad? Maybe this will turn out okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's try to eat his food. When Gilgamesh heard this, that the gate of the mountain is open, he did as the man scorpion had said, followed the sun's road to his rising through the mountain, 80 miles. When he had gone one league, the darkness became thick around him. And there was no light. He could see nothing ahead and nothing behind him. I should add, uh, before we get too far into this mountain, that the sun goes on a secret journey through the mountain. You know, the sun's road to his rising. So the sun sets, takes this 80-mile hike through the mountain, and then rises again on the other side of the mountain. Every day. Every day. Every day. Nothing ahead and nothing behind him. After two leagues, the darkness was thick, and there was no light. The darkness was thick, and there was no light. The darkness was thick, and there was no light. And he could see nothing ahead and nothing behind him. At the end of six leagues, the darkness was thick. When he had gone eight leagues... Gilgamesh gave a great cry. After nine leagues, there was no light. He could see nothing ahead and nothing behind him. The dawn light appeared. At the end of twelve leagues, there was the garden of the gods. All around him stood bushes bearing gems. Got lapis lazuli leaves hung thick with fruit, sweet to see. A stone garden? Uh, yeah, lapis lazuli. All blue-green. That, that's the way this is supposed to be experienced. Shakespeare, the Bible, you know, it might be worthwhile maybe and actually hear them. The takedown way that Gilgamesh treats the goddess Ishtar, it's like as long as the story of the flood is just your harlot nature. You ordered a weeping that will never end. He became a wolf and now his own shepherd boys drive him away. So Ishtar's like, come, be my lover, be my husband, and he's like... <laughs> Ishtar shrieked Anu and Atnu, her mother, as tears of anger poured down her cheeks, father said, but have you provoked this? Ishtar said, please, father, I beg of you, give me the bowl of heaven, just, just <laughs> and destroy his palace. If you say no, living will outnumber the dead, Atnu said, seven long years. Have you provided the people with grain for seven years? And the cow, I have stored up enough for more than seven years. And then Anu had to, of course I did. I just loved it so much. Did you, did you tease him? It's really timeless. The bull of heaven is such a timeling to have kids threaten the underworld ghouls with. Right? Like, but it's such a, give me this thing, I'm going to unleash the undead upon the earth. <laughs> But you know, if you unleash the bull of heaven, they'll have seven years of drought and famine. I don't care. Give me the bull. I know that. God. <laughs> Duh, Dad. Everybody knows. Don't famine. me. Of course I prepared for the drought and famine. Just give me the bull. Right? Like, like of course I'm ready for to drive, Dad. Just give me the keys. That's why it's Much. even funnier that um, at the end she wills. That only did Gilgamesh slander me. He destroyed his own punishment. Because I just love how she's like, no! Gilgamesh! Yeah. Everyone knows she won't literally marry a human. Like, she's a princess goddess. She's not going to actually settle down and give all these rewards. I think she's just 
literally trying to seduce him. She's like, come be like, come be my husband and I'll give your, your land all these wonderful riches if you sleep with me. Enkidu has real rough words for uh, Shamhat, the priestess of Ishtar, when he dies. Again, just like, oh, but he recants yeah. that. Yeah, but it's a little, little dramatic there to be like, I curse you completely. But he's really <laughs> sick. Yeah, okay, fair enough. He's like, he's like wasting away and he's like, oh woman, why have you brought me to this terrible fate I could have been running around with Gazelle. He said he hopes oh, that... Oh, because she was the one that... Because she was the one who brought him out of the forest, That's right? Creative. May wild dogs camp in your bedroom. May owls nest in your attic. May drunkards vomit all over you. May a tavern wall be your place of business. May you be dressed in torn robes and filthy underwear. <laughs> No, that one. Okay, okay. Your version's a little different. May angry wives sue you. (laughs) May thorns and briars make your feet bloody. May angry wives sue yes this other wife yes no 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 not a wife not a wife priestess not a wife a priestess oh so many angry well see there right but that's a thing that's a thing you could do the priestess has seduced my husband like i can actually sue her for that see i think that's i think that's historical context right there like poor woman but he recants that though right like (laughs) what about the wife woman i no no i don't know where the wife came from and but then he recants that because he's like woman i promise you another destiny in the mouth which cursed you shall bless you on your account a man though 12 miles off will clap his hand to his thigh and his hair will twitch hair for you (laughs) will he undo his belt and open undo his belt right and open his treasure and you shall have your desire lapis lazuli golden i don't think lapis lazuli and gold means what yeah i'm I'm pretty sure undoing his belt is uh innuendo i also like that my version doesn't say hair at all it says may he bite his lip in anticipation <laughs> I mean, that, that's the Stephen Miller translation. Enkidu is dreaming. Listen, my friend, to this dream I dreamed last night. The heaven roared and the earth rumbled back in answer, and between them stood I before an awful being, the somber-faced man-bird. He had directed me on his purpose. His was a vampire face. Whoa. His foot was a lion's foot. His hand was an eagle's talon. Did you get the whole vampire face thing? No. No vampires in this one. I would have noticed a vampire. Right? I noticed a vampire. No, no. <laughs> There's a right? lot of dreams in this story. There yeah. is. A lot yeah, of really I, bad I dreams in this yeah. story. Like, no, no, nobody has good. any good... That's what... Really? And Kindu said, they're good. They're good dreams. Good omens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's a good dream. Doesn't seem like a good dream. It's a good dream. And we're definitely reading the victor's narrative here. Like... <laughs> wait, wait, but isn't that doesn't it say that there's another tablet with the uh, Humbaba's story from the other side? Oh. What? Where does it say such things? And the introduction in here. Alright, I'm also gonna race to my introduction. Go, go, Miller versus AK Sanders. <laughs> from this from the uh Stephen Mitchell point mm-hmm. of view. Shamash wants actually to have Humbaba defeated, not destroyed. They misunderstand the god's intention. I think that's part of the reason, perhaps, that gods are angry. They wanted Humbaba defeated for something, but not actually killed and destroyed. Alright, I can't see. So they wanted him, like, subdued? And so that may have something to do with extra stories involving Humbaba. He's, it's actually in a, like, different language uh-huh. text that oh, is whoa. existing. So it might be another So from, hero? from the north, and he's like a, there's like a Humbaba text. There are like stories stories about Humbaba. Okay, so wait, so we get all the way up to what? Kish and Shrupa? Oh, there's a map in here. On the map. On the map. 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 We should mention, we should do 
that every time we have to look at them. <laughs> Sharupa, I think it's Sharupa, Nippur, and Kish, right? So that's on the so that's on the east side of the Fertile Crescent. So if we're talking the north, could he be like? Jordan? I don't know. They mention it somewhere in the book. Correct. Yeah, it's, it's somewhere. There. There's much speculation in here because they're not quite sure whether they mean east or north, east, west, one of those. It's one of those <clears> things <throat> where they said the top. Like, he right. went up. He went up. Well, if it's the land of cedars, I mean, that's like Lebanon, you know? Yeah. My book does mention them going to Lebanon. Yeah. So that's the cedars. Yeah. That makes sense with the Noanic narrative. Mm -hmm. So the question is, which Israeli hero? Right? I think that's what it says, though, is that it, there are also extant tablets that tell stories of, like, Baba. Weird. Yeah, it really makes you wonder on these hero narratives. Like, but it tends to be, like, pairs, right? Like, David and Goliath, Achilles and Hector. Gilgamesh and Enkidu, right? Yeah. And then you have Baba. Who they type. Yeah, could you have any little, like, Beowulf, which we're going to read Beowulf, the Beowulf, Grindel, and Grindel's mother. No. I guess they're a part. This is going to happen. <laughs> okay, but you have to include Enkidu in there, because there's Thing to do is is is, is Grendel, Gilgamesh is Grendel's mother. Beowulf. Can anybody like did anybody check to see if there was any uh, like Gilgamesh and Kadu like fan fiction? I guarantee you there is. <laughs> Probably not from the same time period. No, but. I mean I mean like <laughs> even modern day, thing. right? Like. Liner notes, Gilgamesh fan. I, I, before we let go of Mbamba, though. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I, I'm looking at <laughs> the BBC network, Discover Tablets, I, I suppose, what? in the past few years. I think they're also Gilgamesh Sumerian, or is it? There's, there's, we, we were talking about this at the beginning, like, there's, like, five or six languages that the, that the tablets themselves are extant in. So there is a, a tablet about the epic of Gilgamesh. Mbamba is described in a more positive light. He can be found roaming the beautiful cedar fart. His primary aim is to terrify men, um, but what's remarkable about Gilgamesh tablet recovered at this new museum is that it shows Humbaba in a different light. Where Humbaba came and went, there was a track, the paths were in good order, and the way was well trod. Through all the forest, a bird began to sing. A wooden pigeon was moaning, a turtle dove called an answer. Monkey mothers sing aloud, a youngster monkey shrieks like a band of musicians. They bash out a rhythm in the presence of Humbaba. So, I don't know that there's an extra Humbaba story, but there is a different Humbaba view. He is beloved of the gods and a king of kings in the palace of the far. So do you think that, so that was like a tablet that was discovered that was like a... Yeah, it was a different story. Um, and Enkindu, after they kill Humbaba, I can pull this back up, but essentially says, what have we done? Look at um, your wrath. Mm -hmm. We destroyed the... Um, fender of the forest for what? Mm -hmm. I might be more clear in that story why the gods are really upset. A few of the tablets portray the killing of Humbaba and the good and evil of Gilgamesh in a more nuanced light. Too, I think Gilgamesh isn't exactly a good guy. He's the hero, not exactly good. Yeah, I, I don't know that, you know, we start out finding out that there's, in the very beginning that he's this terrible oppressor, you know, and helps himself to whatever he wants, including brides and everything else. I, I don't understand his progression as a hero. I'm really lost. I don't understand why I should care or, or like him or why he's important. It well, it feels almost to me the story of Saul, like, terrible dude gets worse, you know? Something I was really glad I had going into reading the story was, translator was saying, <laughs> the whole story kind of mirrors the people's attitude at the time towards life, like the randomness the existential fear, like they're in a world they can't trust, they can't trust anything in the world, mm. and death could come for them at any moment. 
when I was reading that, I saw a lot of that. Like, people who don't have control over their environment yet, like the way we do. Huh. Where, you know, a, some weather could happen and then you have no food and then you're dead. A disease hmm. could happen and they don't understand it, you know, someone's well and then they're dead. We also have plenty of heroes in our story, or main characters or protagonists in our stories today that are purposefully not especially good, yet are popular stories. So, Such as? Well, I, the first thing I thought of was Breaking Bad. Yeah. Things you can think of in TV, movies, or... The part in season three, too, where you start out from, like, halfway decent dude that you want, like, to make a decent living selling methamphetamine in order to, like, provide for his family before he dies of cancer. That sentence alone should tell you what you need to know about Breaking Bad, but there's this part, there's a shift in season three where it goes from, like, I don't know if I can root for him anymore and then they like give you permission by the end of it it's like okay this is a bad dude I'm gonna root against him now or like watch him fall you know a lot of stories about kings might have been written as a sort of propaganda I don't know what this story is it definitely doesn't feel very flattering no, to me. It's not a reason to support the King Gilgamesh, but just to think about stories about kings or nobility, I don't know if there's a... That you want to travel. You so want we... that word to get out to your enemies in other territories. Like... Yeah, or you want people to support the idea of the king and the king's like, goodness. That's not here, like as far patron, as I know. Patron-client kind of way. Because as children, we read stories where the hero is good, and then as we get older, the heroes of our stories become more nuanced, and then eventually we're reading stories where we feel conflicted about about wanting the hero to get what they want because they're a terrible person, mm -hmm. you know? And we think of that as being, like, a progression for us, good heroes to complex. And so when we read a really old story that was very popular, we expect it to have a a simple good hero like we're used to you know maybe a good hero is a later or a different maybe so so if you guys were putting down money if the story was written by a character in the story i think watch probably out. the the noah what's his name Monopishtim, because he likes telling stories. You put I think it's, I, I, I actually think it might be the uh, wine bearer, the woman who, okay. the woman with the tavern, oh, hey, right? Yeah. Because she goes, um, when the gods created man, they allotted him to death, but the life they retained in their own keeping. As for you, Gilgamesh, fill your belly with good things, day and night, night and day, dance and be merry, feast and rejoice, let your clothes be fresh, bathe your in water, cherish the little child that holds your hand, mm -hmm. and make your wife happy in your embrace, for this too is the lot of man, right? And I felt like that was actually the moral of the story, right? Like That's very like Ecclesiastes in that way, kind of like Yeah. Well, everything sucks so you might as well do these things. <laughs> right? So you might as well like like savor the good thing. Like that's I feel like like is at least her moral, right? Is like savor the good things because you're all gonna die. There's nothing you can do about death enjoy life while you can don't obsess over your mortality but like live in the present and love your live your life and then you won't have to be afraid of death and she's kind of rebuking his absolutely crisis That's right true. she's she's telling that. him like your existential crisis is stupid go home and kiss your wife and child and, <laughs> and rule your kingdom you yeah, like, you self-indulgent indulgent jerk i agree with that i just kind of always imagine it as more above the same moral but from the God's basically telling people, well, look, the world is terrible, things are crazy, not, you know, your main characters aren't necessarily good guys, like, this is a story uh, you should know about and know this is how the world works. And I kind of see it as part of when 
go back to synagogue when I sat and read the um, Torah translation over and over again, like it seemed like a standard story in, you know, what is the Old Testament. Sure. And it's part of that story, uh, or part of that like line of stories that here are the moral tales that you should understand the world through. Like a parable? Yeah, kind of, like part of a larger uh, religious text. That might be lost forever. True. This is the standard stuff. Learn this and then we'll give you more. It's at the very least a like moral tale, right? Yeah. Like it's a it's a story that, that is meant to be teaching the listeners and the don't have an existential crisis about death because it'll just lead you to wrath and ruin. And a really long tunnel. I think it was Ishtar. You think it was Ishtar? I think it's a revenge I think she's throwing shade for six chapters. It's this long thought out, my bull didn't work, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna make this guy go down and into me in the worst way possible and show everyone how not to be like him and how to love me anyway. All right. Well, you make a compelling argument for it. <laughs> We're gonna wrap it this time. If you guys wanna join us for the next Western Cannonball, we will be reading Hesiod's Theogony. Uh, our version is C.S. Morrissey's Hesiod's Theogony. If you want to read Works and Days, that's cool. It references him getting a trophy for his poem Theogony. The music for this podcast is from a forthcoming album uh, by me called All Who Wonder. You can go to lancelot.nyc uh, to learn a little bit more about mythology. The sound effect at the start comes from Sandlot. This has been Western Cannibal Hour. We're signing out. Lancelot. Emily. Jenny. Paul. Joey. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming, hot Joey. Thanks for coming, hot Lance. Is that what you said? Sure. <laughs> Thank you.